Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're going to move on into part eight, today's topic, part eight of the series, Abortion and, and Forgiveness. So let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the way your Holy Spirit is definitely guiding this church. Uh, we just see your sovereign fingerprints all over it. And we see time, uh, just an incredible timing of different things and things coming up at just the right moments. And we see it over and over and over again. And so we just give you the praise. <laughs> that, uh, that just, it just gives us a great deal of security in knowing that you're in charge and that it isn't human beings that are in charge. And so we ask you to continue to guide us forward in these, uh, in these treacherous days. Help us navigate the minefields that are all around us. Uh, for your honor and for your glory that Jesus may be raised up, that people would be drawn to him, and that they would f- discover in him a relationship with the living God and that they would find the freedom that they have so desperately longed for and uh, walk not only in freedom but into the abundant life that you, you promised. So speak to us now even on this particular uh, topic, this difficult topic. And uh, we, uh, we say to you that we choose to engage and not, and not push back on, the, on what you have to say through your word and what is truth, and uh, then to listen to your Holy Spirit, uh, to cooperate in partnership with what you are doing in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Of course, the topic of sexuality and abortion go hand in hand because abortion is most often used as a means of birth control. So far this year, over 32 million babies have already been aborted uh, worldwide, and that's roughly the population of Canada, just a little under. The World Health Organization estimates uh, that about 40 to 50 million are aborted every year. In the U.S., approximately 1.2 million babies are aborted each year. And last Saturday, Fran and I and others here in this church went to see the abortion display of 100,000 pink and blue flags that were planted at the 80 Penner Park representing the 100,000 babies that are intentionally aborted each year in Canada. Uh, of course, this display also was uh, on Parliament Hill in, in Ottawa, and these displays are sponsored by the organization We Need a Law.ca. Canada is the only country that has no law limiting abortion, and a good starter book on this uh, would probably be Randy Elkhorn's Why Pro-Choice, or Pro-Life, I'm sorry, and uh, it's in our library. We have a very good library, by the way. And if you haven't, if you haven't checked it out, you should. Um, it, 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 it's, it continues to grow. Chris keeps adding new uh, books uh, to it all the time. And uh, the one day I stopped by there and I asked, how many books are out at any given time? And they said between 400 and 500 books. 
and uh, it's, 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 a, it's a very good library. I've also gleaned excellent philosophical articulation on the subject, on this particular subject, from Dr. Hendrik van der Bregen's Apologia articles from the last few years. He writes uh, these articles for the Carillon, and then he puts it on his website. And uh, he's written scores of uh, articles. I've, I've read between 45 and 50 of them. And uh, uh, Dr. Hendrik is, uh, has, a, has a BA in philosophy, an MA in philosophy, and a doctorate in philosophy uh, from three different secular universities, Canadian universities, and teaches at uh, Providence. He's a godly man. Uh, they're a godly couple. They're, from, they're part of the Southland Church family. And uh, we're very proud to have him in our midst. And, and in the summertime, I was in contact with him back and forth because I was working on this project, Answers for the Church and Culture. And uh, he gave me full permission to use any of his articles and just take the stuff and put it in there. Of course, I'm acknowledging that I'm doing it in there, but uh, that, that's just unheard of. He just cares about the truth. He cares about the church. He knows that the time is short, and so he said, we've just got to get it out there. And so um, the arguments in the first of the four sections that I'm going to uh, talk about come exclusively out of his materials uh, that I've read, I've culled it, and uh, tried to compact it and put it into something that I could use in one section uh, this, uh, this morning, but he gets credit for all of it. And... Um, uh, I have three goals for this uh, message, and, and here are the goals. To warn those who uh, are considering abortion as an option now or in the future. To offer the hope of God's forgiveness and healing, but you'll have to wait to the end. We'll have to go through the dark uh, stuff first, and at the end of the message, then we can come out. And then thirdly, to awaken the rest of us to the Holocaust that's transpiring all around us. So let's begin with section one uh, that's entitled Overturning Justifications for Abortion Rationally and Logically. And here's one of the, uh, I'm going to present six different arguments that are, that are being used a lot. There are other ones, but we, we only have time to take six of them. Some of them you will recognize. Uh, some of them you won't. But the first one is that an acorn uh, isn't an oak tree, so the fetus isn't a human being. Now, should we pr be persuaded by this logic? And the answer is no, because it's a faulty analogy. The, the acorn oak tree analogy confuses the concepts of kind and developmental stage. And just hang on. If, if there's something you don't understand in one of the statements, if you hang on and just use your mind, you, you'll, we'll come out on the, uh, on the end. We'll, I'm going to be using illustrations that will help. Yes, an acorn isn't an oak tree, that is, a seed isn't a grown tree. But we need to ask, what kind of seed is the acorn? And the answer is oak. The acorn is the first developmental stage of the oak, the seed, and the subsequent developmental stages include sprout and sapling and tree, and I've put it up on the screen like that. Significantly, all the stages are oaks, oak entities, oak beings. Now consider the fetus. What kind of fetus are we talking about? Human, not feline, not canine. The fetus is an early developmental stage of the human. The first stage is the, uh, the zygote, 
or the fertilized egg. And subsequent stages include the embryo, the fetus, infant, toddler, teen, and adult. Significantly, all the stages are human. That is, human entities, human beings. So, is it a mistake to call a fetus a human being? No, it's not. What is a mistake is to think that only adults are human beings, which is what the faulty acorn oak tree analogy would lead us to believe. Are teens human beings? Are children human beings? Are infant human beings? We can just go all the way back and we find out it's the exact same thing. Here's the second. Uh, here's a second uh, common argument and justification for abortion. Abortion is about a woman's body. No doubt most of you have heard this one. So no one else should have a say. Well, the argument goes something like this. Premise one. Every woman has a right to control her own body. Premise two. The fetus is a part of the woman's body. Therefore, women have the right to an abortion. Now, the argument sounds good, but is it sound? Consider the following two facts. A woman has two feet, and a fetus has two feet. So, if a fetus's two feet are a part of the fetus, and if the fetus is a part of the pregnant woman, then the fetus's two feet are a part of the woman. Hence, the woman has four feet. Obviously, these are absurdities. So we can conclude that the second premise is false. The premise that the fetus is a part of the woman's body. Significantly, premise two fails to recognize the distinction between the concepts of part and connection. I'll explain. Object A can be connected to object B. Yet object A need not be a part of B. Let me illustrate it this way. The piano in a mover's truck is connected, via straps, to the truck. Yet the piano is not a part of that truck. Does that make sense? Similarly, the fetus is connected to a woman's body, yet the fetus is not a part of the woman's body. Sure, every woman has the right to control her own body, but there are two bodies involved in an abortion, not one. Here's a third argument that is some, sometimes proposed as a justification for abortion, deal with the underlying causes that drive women to abortion instead. The argument, for example, uh, goes something like this. A pregnant woman may be facing psychological problems, so that should be our focus. In reply, we should keep in mind that abortion kills an unborn child, a human being, and that's hugely significant. Consider uh, what Scott Klusendorf's insightful critique of this argument says, and I quote, This is like saying that the underlying cause of spousal abuse is psychological, so instead of making it illegal for husbands to beat their wives, the solution is to provide counseling for men. Well, it's good to have counseling for men, but we, sh we should still make it illegal for men to beat their wives. Isn't it true? Think about it. Psychological problems require psychological solutions. Social and economic problems require social and economic solutions, not the killing of innocent children. So to protect, protect the children, we need a law. Here's a fourth one. 
It would be too difficult to police and enforce. That one's used a lot. But in reply, we should note that it is difficult to police and enforce laws against, say, texting and driving. But the law works to discourage texting and driving, and the same is true of seatbelt laws. The point is, if an action kills or threatens to injure innocent others, a law against the action is not unreasonable, even if it is not 100% effective. Very few laws are 100% effective. Notice that there's room to be creative here, too. Perhaps a law against abortion should include things like uh, criminalize the abortionists, not the women pressured into abortion, or help the women who are so pressured. Anti-prostitution laws have worked like that in the past, criminalizing pimps and johns while helping women out, uh, get out of prostitution. Surely, social problems require social solutions, not the killing of children. Here's a fifth one, argument that's used to justify uh, abortion. Rape justifies abortion. Now, some perspective is, is in order here. For one, rape accounts for less than 1% of abortions in Canada. So abortion for rape doesn't justify the other 99% uh, of abortions, does it? Another important question is, why punish the child for the crime of its father? That is, why turn the unborn child into an innocent victim too? Surely it would be better to do the following. Help the innocent child by, say, adoption. Help the suffering mother psychologically, medically, financially. Punish the rapist. Lock him up and seize his assets to pay restitution. I'd like to see more of those kind of laws. Restitution. Rape is terrible. Don't misunderstand me. Nevertheless, abortion does not undo a rape. In fact, abortion is an instance of further violence. In addition, there's growing evidence of abortion's negative health consequences for the mother, so abortion as a solution to rape may in fact make matters worse for the rape victim. And there's a lot of evidence uh, uh, concerning that. Here's the sixth, uh, the, the sixth argument that we'll look at uh, this morning. If you don't believe in abortion, then just don't have one. Well, this argument has the same force as saying, if you don't believe in slavery, don't own one. But for those of us who believe in it, we'll have slaves. How bizarre is that? Or, if you don't believe in murder, just don't kill anyone. This pro-choice argument assumes that beliefs about human rights are limited to one's personal sphere only, but they're not. How about the right of the innocent human being? When a woman faces a crisis pregnancy, she definitely needs help finding a solution to the problem. She does. So, fathers, friends, family, church, and society should assist mightily, mightily. But solving the problem of an unwanted child by allowing the choice to kill that child is more morally reprehensible. It's like solving the problem of, think about this, it's like solving the problem of homelessness by allowing the choice to kill the homeless. 
It's an unjust solution. It's just plain wrong. Well, let's talk about the, uh, the next thing. Let's uh, talk about overturning justifications for, uh, or justification for abortion, biblically. Since God is the creator of human life, all human beings belong to God. That means that humans aren't accidents of history. It is also clear from Scripture that only human beings are said to bear the image of God. They're unique. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In fact, the covenant with Noah specifies that humans can kill animals for food, but I want you to see what God said about mankind. In Genesis 9.6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Animals may be killed for human sustenance, but human beings may not murder other human beings. Thus humans are morally distinguishable from other living species. This is the foundation of the doctrine of the sanctity, and by that, by that we mean the sacredness of every human life. So whenever you hear that phrase, sanctity of life, that's what we're talking about, sacredness of life, human life. And Jesus, th this is really important what I'm going to say next, Jesus' incarnation further confers a special dignity and sacredness to human life. We're not just animals and we're not just matter. We're beings made in the image of God. And Jesus took on that image. He took on human flesh. That puts us at a whole different level than everything else that has been created by God. Thus, every human life, from conception to natural death, is to be treated with reverence and respect and is not to be harmed without biblical justification. And so, with regard to infants... God's people were warned not to imitate their neighbors who committed infanticide through child sacrifice, for example. Leviticus 18.21 says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And the death penalty was prescribed for those who violated this particular command just two chapters later. Yet this barbaric practice was known during King Solomon's reign and it spread to Moab, Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. And prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel railed against and condemned the practice, calling on God's people to repent of it. But how about those not yet born? Does the Bible speak to that as well? Yes, it does. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25 says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children, yelled, that's the Hebrew, come out or are born, yatsa, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Some think that this passage proves that the Bible doesn't view the unborn as human. They say this is speaking about a miscarriage in which there is no further harm to the woman, but that's not what this passage is saying. The passage is saying that the woman is giving birth to a live infant prematurely, but there is no injury to the child or mother. That's what it's talking about. And there's three reasons that we know this to be true. First, the Hebrew word yelled is used, which always refers to a child who can live outside the womb. Second, the verb yatsa is used to refer to live births. And there's a number of passages through the Old Testament that demonstrate that. And third, the word normally used for miscarriage, shakal, is not used here. And there's instances throughout the Old Testament where it is used. So the fact that it's using a word that would be for a, uh, used for a live birth, and the fact that it's not using a word that has been used elsewhere for a miscarriage, indicates that, that's not, that it's not talking about miscarriage here. It's talking about a, uh, about a live birth. This text actually places great protection on the unborn child, for if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. Proportionate punishment. That's what that means. So the Old Testament attributes uh, human personhood to the developing baby in the womb. And this is important to note because abortion was a well-known practice uh, in ancient times, including Rome, for example. In Rome, for example, respect for marriage had virtually become extinct when we get to the New Testament times. And the philosopher Seneca, he's the Roman philosopher, he called unchastity, and I, and I quote, the greatest evil of our time. In light of the pronounced deterioration of marriage, countless Roman women engaged, engaged in adulterous sex, and when they became pregnant, destroyed the evidence. Play, uh, the philosophers Plato and Aristotle and others had no qualms about taking the life of an unborn. They even argued that the state had a right to have a woman submit to an abortion so that the state wouldn't become too populous. Sound familiar? Nothing has changed under the sun, has it? We haven't come up with anything new. Sin is as old as it's ever been. The most common means were mechanical methods and drugs delivered through pessaries, devices placed inside the woman. And it's not too surprising to find the New Testament ad addressing this. Revelation 21 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, the Greek word behind it is pharmakia, does that sound familiar? Like pharmacy? Idolaters? And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Immediately after the apostle John condemned sexual immorality, notice that he followed it with, a, uh, with the plural word pharmakois, because sexual immorality often resulted in unwanted pregnancies being aborted. And... Uh, uh, and uh, Paul also referred, I'm going to come back to that word in just a, in a minute, so just hang on. Paul also referred to these drugs 
uh, used for abortion in his list of sins. In Galatians 5, he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. The Greek word behind that, again, is pharmakia. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the word pharmakia has commonly been translated in our English translations as sorcery or witchcraft because potions were often made in the context of sorcery. However, potions or drugs were also commonly used to endorse abortions among the Greco-Romans. These biblical references also have extra biblical support for, uh, for calling this uh, or referring to this as drugs for abortion. There's a great deal of evidence that suggests that, that, that this is at the very least including the, the potions and the drugs for abortions. It may not exclude the, uh, the potions for uh, sorcery and such, but you can't just automatically go and just pick sorcery or witchcraft without recognizing what the other sources are saying and what the context of the situation was at that time. Uh, for example, these biblical references have extra-biblical support, pagan and Christian. Plutarch, a pagan, uses pharmakia to note that it was especially used for contraception and abortion purposes. I'm just taking a few, because uh, we don't have time to go through a whole list. An early Christian document, Didache, the Didache, says abortion is forbidden, and in so arguing, uses the words, ou pharmakoisis, or you shall not use potions, and these words are immediately followed by, in the Greek, but I'll just translate it, you shall not ki kill a child by abortion. The guilds also sold aborted bodies to the manufacturers of beauty creams in those days. In criticizing women who conceal their sexual sin, Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, he linked abortion with the taking of potions, or pharmacois. Uh, Minucius Felix, a Christian lawyer, declared, and I quote, there are women who by medicinal drafts extinguish in the womb and commit infanticide upon the offspring yet unborn. There he used the word infanticide for, um, for the unborn. We usually normally use it for those that are born. The Gospel writer, Luke, himself a physician, records something fascinating when he, uh, when he says that Elizabeth, uh, what Elizabeth said about the baby in her womb, which was John the Baptist, when Mary came to greet her. In Luke chapter 1, verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That, my friends, is a human being. And that's what the Bible views it as. Well, we've got to move on. Let's talk a little bit, a bit about the um, methods of aborting the least of these. In last weekend, um, Ray Yoder read a lengthy passage out of Matthew 25 on the least of these. It was uh, very moving and stirring. So let's talk about aborting the least of these. In this case, we're talking about unborn uh, children 
There are many different methods of abortions used in Canada. The method of abortion selected depends mainly on the size of the fetus and the stage of development. Fetus, of course, is the Latin for unborn offspring or young one. And uh, of, uh, I'm just going to choose three uh, that are well known. Suction aspiration method, DNC. In 2004, this was used for approximately 90% of the abortions in Canada used primarily between weeks uh, uh, 6 and 14. A hollow tube is inserted into the uterus through the cervix and attached to a suction machine. The suction tears the fetus into small parts. The parts are sucked into a collection bottle. Then the abortionist must examine all the parts to make sure it's all out. Here's the second one. The dilation and evacuation method, D&E. In the U.S., after 13 weeks, this is the most common method. For this, they need to use forceps uh, to dismember and extract the fetus, most often together with suction. As the fetus grows larger and its bones become harder, the fetus becomes more difficult to extract, so the cervix must be opened wider. And the head of the fetus is uh, large and must be crushed before it can be removed. Bone fragments are sharp and must be carefully removed to avoid damage to the uterus and cervix. The body parts are removed, uh, or that are removed must be identified to make sure no parts are left in the uterus. And then the final uh, method that I'm going to mention here is dilation and extraction method, DNX. This is a variation of the DNE method and, and is used after 20 weeks. Forceps are used to grasp the fetus, place it face down, but feet first. The fetus, intact and often still alive, is delivered up to the head. The head is too big to pass through the cervix, so the abortionist punctures the base of the skull, sucks out the brain with a suction machine, thereby collapsing the skull and then the dead fetus is delivered. In 2014, news agencies revealed that two hospitals were supplying aborted fetuses as fuel for incinerators that provide electricity. One hospital is located in England, the other in British Columbia. The latter shipped its fetal parts along with the regular biomedical trash to a power plant in Oregon. The killing of children is itself a horror, but an additional horror is the calm, systematic, efficient, environmental, uh, environmentally friendly, and impersonal handling of the incineration of the children's bodies. On Dr. Hendrik van der Bregen's Facebook page, someone even wrote, reduce reuse, recycle. Emily Letts, an American 25-year-old abortion clinic counselor, made a YouTube video of her own abortion to portray a positive abortion story, and during the video, uh, she's seen uh, happily humming along describing the abortion experience as birth-like. She adds, I don't feel like a bad person, I don't feel sad, I feel in awe of the fact that I can make a baby, I can make a life. She expresses no moral qualm about taking her child's life. 
and the film won a video contest with Abortion Care Network and then Cosmopolitan published Let's Story. But here's a reality check. Many abortion stories are in fact not positive, as many post-abortive women testify, and we have women in our church that will testify to that. In fact, I received a, a letter from one woman uh, this, uh, this week, an email, 10-page. She attached a 10-page uh, testimony. Further, there are physical health risks with this. And finally, and we can never forget this, abortion kills a human being. Finally, we just want to look for a few moments about caring about the least of these. And one way is through adoption. James 1.27, a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, is this, and adoption and fostering, I might add, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Throughout history, Christians have taken on the practice of adopting children abandoned and not wanted. There's so much literature on that, what Christians have done uh, right from the first century on. We have three in our own uh, extended family, and a couple of our staff have done the same. Tom Dick uh, says, uh, says that 80 Southland families either foster or have adopted, and that's roughly 15% of the, fa of, of the, of the uh, families uh, you know, where they have children that also have either uh, foster or adopted children. And if you're considering abortion because of an unwanted pregnancy, please don't do it. Please consider adoption instead. We can point you in the right direction for this. You can talk to Tom. You can talk to Grace as well. Um, any of our staff actually will, will point you in the right direction. Then the second thing is prayer. The organization We Need a Law is right. We need a law. Our previous and pre present uh, majority governments haven't allowed and won't allow discussion on this matter. Canada is the only country that has no law whatsoever limiting abortion, and it's clear that without God's help, we will never see a law. We need to pray, and we'll pray for it at every prayer summit. There is not a chance we can pull this off simply through activism. Absolutely impossible. This requires God to help us. And that's one, another reason why you need to be at the prayer summit, because we're going to make this a piece of every prayer summit that I lead. Well, we're wrapping up. The truth is that many, many women experience post-abortion syndrome, waves of guilt and grief and shame. And I said I was going to end here and come back to that and offer hope and forgiveness and healing. First, Satan tells you it's okay to have an abortion, and then once you have it, then he condemns you. Many turn to addictions to medicate the pain, and others so overcome with guilt and shame engage in self-harm behaviors such as cutting to punish themselves. In essence, they're becoming like God to themselves, judging and condemning their own behavior and meeting out justice against themselves. It relieves the pain temporarily, but eventually this leads to the complete destruction of their lives. You're not going to get help out there in the system 
And I'll tell you why. Because they believe in and promote abortion. They want you to have one. They think that is the solution. So they're not going to be able to help you on the other side of the issue. Only Jesus and his body, the church, can help you through this. He is the one who already took your sin, your shame, your condemnation, and your penalty on the cross. He paid it all. He offers you forgiveness and healing and hope and abundant life on the other side. And if you'll confess and repent of your sins, placing your trust in his finished work on the cross for your sins, he will save you and exchange your filthy rags of sin and, and shame for robes of righteousness and wholeness Amen. and hope. So this is what we're going to do this morning. Uh, perhaps you came as a visitor. Perhaps you've been attending out of curiosity for a little while. You've never put your faith and trust in Christ. You've never turned from your sin. This is what I want to say to you. God is a multifaceted being. He holds justice and holiness on the one side. And on the other side, love and mercy and grace. So he demands that sin be paid for. The Hitlers of this world don't get away with it in the end. On the other hand, he loves human beings so much, and he wants to offer them mercy and grace, so he had to come up with a solution. And his solution was to place his judgment of sin against his own son, Jesus. It's either you and I pay it, or Jesus pays it. If we pay for it, then we stand condemned and judged and under his penalty for all eternity. If he pays for it, he paid for it on the cross. In our place, he took our hell. And all the guilt you feel and all the shame for everything you've done, whether it's an abortion or some other sin that we've talked in this series or some other sin besides that, he took the whole thing on the cross. That's the point. That's where grace and love and mercy and justice and holiness kissed at the cross. That's where they met. And so he offers you forgiveness. So you say, well, what's my part? Your part is to turn from your sins, acknowledging it, and saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't go like this. You've been living independently, trying to do it yourself. And now you turn to Jesus and you say, I just accept that gift from you. That's it. You put your faith and trust in what he has already done for you, and that establishes a relationship between you and the Father. You are then forgiven. And that is the beginning of walking into freedom and wholeness. So we're going to pray a prayer, as we often do here, I'm going to ask the church to follow me in a prayer, and if you would like to receive Jesus into your life, and you would like to have forgiveness and wholeness, start a new life, you want to become a Christian and a Christ follower, then you pray this prayer out of your heart, and he will save you. He said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be 
saved. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. Thank you for showing me the truth, even though it's hard. I recognize today that I'm a sinner. I have violated your commands. And I deserve to stand condemned with guilt and shame and to pay the penalty for my sins. But I thank you that you loved me so much that you sent Jesus, your son, to be condemned in my place, to carry my guilt and my shame and my sin. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I turn my life over to you. And I receive you as my Savior. And also as my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it from your heart, then God made you a Christian, a member of his family. Then you need to go to the prayer room right after the service, through the double doors, and you need to tell someone there yeah, that we have trained intercessors. Now, I want to pray. Uh, I want to say something else. In prayer yesterday morning, the Spirit showed me that he had answered our prayers about being a city on a holy hill. I was praying, and suddenly the Holy Spirit revealed it to me that he was answering the prayer. It's on our wall. Our executive pastor made sure it got up there. It's one of our prayers for this year, a city on a holy hill. And as I was praying, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that he had been answering it. It was his idea to come up with this series right now. It was his idea about the Conquer series for pornography. I was absolutely blown away. I couldn't believe it. I just went, Lord, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know how in the world are we going to measure that one. <laughs> and he said, well, this has been me. You asked for it, you're getting it. I'm making you more holy, and I think that's amazing. It's not easy, though. When we go through the baptism of repentance, but when we go through the baptism of repentance, you know, going through these tough kind of messages and stuff. They're not fun. They're not light. They require confession. They require repentance. The hard stuff, we go down into the baptism of repentance, and then we come out and are raised to walk in newness of life. Amen? Amen. That's when we experience the abundant life. After the death and darkness of dealing with our sins comes resurrection. And I was reminded of what the psalmist said, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So I'm going to pray a prayer right now of repentance for believers. Not just for those who have been involved in abortion, but for all of us who haven't cared. And the Holy Spirit said to me this week, he said, you haven't cared enough. Oh yeah, we occasionally pray for abortion and stuff like that, and of course we know what we believe, but he said, you haven't really cared deep down 
about the Holocaust that's taking place around you. It hasn't troubled you that much. Yesterday, <laughs> this is not in the message, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. I sat in my office, and as I was finishing up, I, I got a text from my wife, and she said, how's the message going? She prays a lot for me. And uh, I texted back and I said, I hate this afternoon. I'm so nauseous. I'm sick to my stomach right now. And I wish I didn't have to talk about this. Do we care? Does it bother us? So I had to repent. So I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance for us. Lord, we acknowledge today that we, we can be so easily sucked into becoming part of the problem instead of the solution because we become callous to the sins around us. and We just don't really, we give up and we don't care. and We don't trust you in these things. And so I repent of it personally, as an individual, but also lead pastor here at Southland for not caring like I should have. And I ask you to forgive us as a church and church in this region and the church across Canada for our callousness in this, for not trusting you, for, for giving up. We say to you, we're going to press into prayer. We're going to press into you and do whatever your Holy Spirit tells us. We're not going to act stupid, running around, but we will listen to your Spirit and we will obey, even if it costs. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Here are the next steps for you. Prayer room is open through the double doors. I encourage you to go and see somebody if you're struggling with the issue we talked about today or your marriage or some other sin. And contact Grace uh, fast if you've had an abortion and you want some healing on this or if you're considering one. And talk to her in confidence and she'll be happy to help you. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.